Thank you, Lord. We're just so grateful that we're your children and we're your family and that we have a divine DNA within us. Father, we're just so grateful. Father, just come and Holy Spirit, come and be just who you want to be amongst us today. Enable us, Lord, to open our hearts to things that we maybe never thought of things that we never recognised about what you are holding out to your church right now. That we live in an unprecedented time of your favour and you want us to ask and ask big. So Father, we rejoice to be in your presence and your company. And thank you for the angels that you've sent here. And thank you for what's going to happen today in advance. So we bless you. Ask Holy Spirit that you'll just check me every time I go to say anything you don't want said. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I want to make a statement first, and that is that prophets always attack any notion or practice that threatens the freedom of people. They make war on religion and they make war on bondage. And this morning may do some of that, or today might do some of that. And someone said the other day that when God's appointed time comes, we experience the move of God. We suddenly have a move of God and we think, wow, but it's his time. It's his Kairos time. And those of you who were with us in September know that there was a move in the spirit in September from which we have not gone back because something has shifted. Um, and before we start, I want to ask you to think about something because I'm hoping either at the end of this session or at the beginning of the next one, can you all hear me okay? Um, what is it you most want in your relationship with God right now? Um, because at the end of the session I'm going to ask you to break into pairs and pray for each other for what it is you want in your relationship with him. It's not your Jaguar and your three-bedroom house and your six cars. It's not that one. It's the desire for God that he is placing in your heart right now. Because he, he does place desires in our hearts that he then wants us to ask for. My desire right now is just to be away with him. I, I, every available minute I just want to be away with him. That's not me, it's him. He's drawing me into him for some purpose. So give it a little thought. Don't get threatened by it, because he will drop something into your mind and then you can get someone to pray it. No, absolutely certainly you're going to get it. Good, isn't it? So, I've reminded you about the schools, I've reminded you about the baton and spiritual warfare, and in June, maybe, we'll be looking at capital punishment. I'm not sure yet, because it's a bit of a long way away. And in June, we do have a week-long school, which is residential, again, on the Book of Revelation. Uh, and I'll be handing some booking forms out for that next month when we do the conference, but it, it will be the 3rd to the 6th of June, and the venue is Fieldview. There are four places for four ladies, <laughs> residential, uh, So, but anyone who wants to come can come. Um, so there we are. Let's get cracking. How many of us are there, I wonder? I haven't had a head count. Anybody like to do a quick count for me? 21. <coughs> that would be brilliant. 
because I've been ever so kind to you here today. I spent hours, Joyce will tell you, and red eyes, typing out four sheets in from the Amplified Bible. I mean, you can't get much more wordy than that. On Bible references for authority and leadership and two kinds of fellowship. Um, because the title of today is, and it's passing the baton 13, is Authority and Leadership in the 21st Century Church. But the subtitle is A Different Way of Living and a Different Way of Loving. What I want to do is to swing us round on our axis and see that actually the, the love we live with is not God's love. And so there's a way uh, to get ourselves into alignment with him and to... Uh, to come into the agape of God. It's costly, but it's well worth it, because you get the heart of God. So I've got 20 copies of these. So if someone would like to be so kind, and if you find you've run out, ask the girlies to share, but you'll find all the scriptures, there's masses of scriptures this morning, or today. It's, it, there are so many. Um, what I've done is I've started with the fellowship with God, then fellowship with each other, which are the one another scriptures, as I call them. Loads of those, and you'll probably find some more. Um, and then conscience scriptures, a string of those which I didn't type out. You could look for them up yourself. And then the definition of bishops, overseers, and deacons. I had the most hysterical thing given to me yesterday, or came through the post. A coalition of apostles. <laughs> I say, I wonder what Paul would say about that. <laughs> I mean, it's all there, isn't it? They're bright to life out there, really. There we are. Anyway, let's go. So, God is shaking the church out of her paradigm, and we're in a new era. And I make no apologies for keep saying this all over and over again. It's my lady. Uh, you'll be well familiar with her now paradigm shift, the old hag or the pretty young girl and God is not coming back for an acne ridden old hag he's coming back for a pretty girl so we're in the process of a paradigm shift within the church itself um, in the, her dust bowl prophecy uh, Chris Larkin some of you have gone into her website and seen the uh, dust bowl prophecy at the end of October last year where she said everything was going to be stirred up and a lot of us are finding that serious stuff's happening in our lives which is turfing up things that God wants to deal with because it's him that's doing it and she said the structure the Lord is ordaining for the new time is built first on relationship with function following just as God is relational first and out of relationship life comes. Who we are together will determine what we do. All those little birds. There's no lack of things to do but there is a famine of true fellowship. Fellowships of the heart will emerge from the dust storm. It will seem like all that is left of our old way of life is a heart to serve God with no form or structure to hide behind. So that was what she said in October last year. The church doesn't exist for itself but to reveal God's glory. When God does a new thing it will not be to fulfil our expectation on how things should function and to satisfy our personal preferences. It will be to fulfil his eternal purposes. 
Therefore we may find it uncomfortable, strange, even unpleasant at first because it will move us dramatically from one place to another. I suspect today that I may, as Bob, M Bob Mumford would say, burn your biscuit. <laughs> I have permission to speak to you about the new order of things because that order is totally different from the old and it may make us distinctly uncomfortable, as I said. But, beloved, it's intended to. It's time for us to come out of our comfort zones into the power and presence of God. God is doing a new thing and we are required to heed what he says to us through his prophets. We are only as good collectively as we are individually and coming together won't bring power unless we each come with light. So it's time for us to live a life of celebration and victory. I began our meeting on the 1st of December last year like this. In order for the body of Christ to prepare itself to be the bride of Christ as it one day must be, we need to have not another revival, not another great awakening, but a complete reformation. A reformation in our approach to the scriptures, a reformation in our approach to each other, and a reformation especially in our approach to God and the love of God. When this takes place, and only then, can we truly obey the first and greatest commandment that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind and our strength. This is the essence and true meaning of our calling as Christians. Beloved, there's a fresh wind blowing. Today is just the start of what God is seeking to do and will do in his church before Jesus comes. A complete reformation of the way we think, perceive and live out our faith. So may God bless you as you listen to this. May he awaken in you a desire to commit yourself to him afresh this day, forsaking all others, cleaving only unto him. It's only from putting this relationship first in our lives that we'll enter the power and authority God wants to bestow upon his church before Jesus comes. Beloved, we have choices to make. So that was how I started in December. I don't know about you, but for some time I've experienced what I can only describe as a divine dissatisfaction with the way we do church. I felt guilty about feeling like this. And now the prophets are speaking. The cloud is moving. People are leaving churches, both institutional and charismatic. Wash your mouth out with soap, Beryl. We know something is happening, but we aren't sure what it is. But we are still the body, the church, the bride and the army of God. We're in transition between one move of God and another. He's moved, it's just that we're trotting up behind. Because as ever, we're always a bit slow on the uptake. I remember when we had a move of God some years ago, I said to the Lord, am I going to like it? He said, no. I said, no. Not even you, he said. Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> At this time, doing what we've always done, the way we've always done it, will result in what we've always getting what we've always got. And the same message will bring the same results and it will kill what the Holy Spirit is seeking to impart to us. Jonathan Edwards said, The task of every generation is to discover which direction the Sovereign Redeemer is moving in and move in that direction. Bob Mumford said that one of his parishioners said to him when he was a young pastor, Pastor, are you in the move of God? I certainly am, he said. 
Then he went home, fell flat on his face in the carpet and said to the Lord, what is the move of God? <laughs> so I would ask you the same thing today. Are you in the move of God? And how would you know? If you aren't, do you want to be? And are you prepared to pay the cost to enter the kingdom? I'm not talking about salvation. You can't lose that once you have it. I'm talking about kingdom. The kingdom of God in your life and mine. Coming into everything Jesus won for us on the cross. The task before us today is to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and when we hear, respond. I had a dream too. God's um, given us dreams and visions and revelations and lovely things. And it was while I was in preparation for this day because I pray a lot, I wait on God, I spend a lot of time. You ask Joyce. In this dream, I was watching two people painting an old car. It was probably upwards of 50 years old, and it was like a bull-nosed Morris, if any of you know what that looks like. And they painted it white, um, and then they put black flames coming up along the bottom of the door and over the wheel arches to tart it up a bit, you know. Now, I could see ridges in the paint where they'd applied it thickly and without expertise. I knew they were preparing to sell the vehicle, as I was aware they'd already sold one before because it was over the back there and I could see they'd sold it. Another makeover. As I meditated and prayed on the dream, I felt the Lord was saying, this is my church. Every time I do a new thing, they do a makeover of the old and market it as new. Just think about it. Time and again, we've bolted the new onto the old until the church is so cumbersome it cannot move. This is specifically a characteristic of the charismatic movement, and some of you are going to grin, renaming things and calling cell groups house groups when there is no intrinsic, and by that mean I mean... By that I mean basic and essential change. They change the name of it, you know, but it actually doesn't change. It's doing the same old thing. Just isn't going to cut it anymore. That's like going to the supermarket and seeing new improved on everything and finding it's either just the same or not so good. And we cannot market church like a washing powder. Beloved, we are in a new era in God. We're not in a new season. This is a new era. And we have to look for the signs and follow him. Don't let us do a makeover on what we already have and try to market it as something new. Let's hear what God is saying and asking of us and let's respond to him, letting go of what we need to let go of in order to embrace the new. Whenever God does something new, we have to let go of the old. And that's been the problem. We've not let go of the old. We've looked over the fence picked on the bits we want and bolted it onto what we've got because we're terrified to let go of the old. And I've actually been challenged recently to let go of what I've been doing for the last 15 or 20 years because God wants to bring me into something different. He's actually asked me to lay down personal ministry. I've been doing that so it's automatic. And Carol Shires was with us, uh, you know, Graham Cook's ex-PA, and she said, just say, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> so be alert to what he may be asking of you personally, that he wants you to let go of, 
so that he can give you something bigger. Any of you know Graham's story about this little boy and the toys? It's coming up for his birthday, and he wants, Daddy wants to buy him a big toy, and he looks in the cupboard and he says, um, you have to get rid of some of those for the size of the thing I want to buy you. So the brother goes by the door and says, I'm stabbed for another cupboard. So Graham says, cupboard schmubbard, I want a big toy. Uh, so a few days go by and all of a sudden there's banging going on coming down the stairs and there's his son with a box full of toys he's going to have a garage sale on the front lawn <laughs> get rid of them that's what we need to do there are things that we need to let go of they're good things some of them are godly visions it says so in the prophecy godly visions, he set them up, he started you off on them but that does not mean to say that he hasn't got the right to screw it up and throw it away when he's finished with it we take ownership and then we lose it. So there we are. We're in a time of divine acceleration. We're behind the times and we need to run. And I have no doubt that I'll ask more questions than I'll answer today. I might even make you mad. It would be lovely if I made you glad. But it's not a bad thing if I make you mad because it will cause you to question where you are and to seek God and to move to align yourself with him. If we keep doing what we've always done, we'll keep getting what we've always had. So we've got to move from the same old, same old. We really have got to move. I have got a prayer here, so I didn't know I was going to use it or not. And this is for you personally, how you feel. It's a prayer for an align alignment with the Holy Spirit. I pray that I would become a person aligned with you spirit, soul and body, mentally, physically, emotionally and spiritually aligned with you and your purposes. That you will train me in righteousness, you will train me to be joyful and peaceful and loving and kind and merciful and full of self-control. And it's a warrior's prayer because it goes on to say, would you raise up warriors, people who want to live aligned with you because they are fascinated by you. When we're fascinated by you, we're not intimidated by the enemy. No weapon fashioned against us will prosper. Because in our alignment, we're steadfast, we're fixed. Our heart is fixed, O oh God, and focused on you. Now, if any of you want to take that away and pray, that is strictly between you and God. But if you pray that, then know that he will take you at your word. Because he does actually hear what you're saying. Can I just say something? Yeah? Before you read that prayer out, I've been saying that prayer to God. You can expect some fireworks then. <laughs> there we are, they're there for you. As I say, they were in my bag and I thought, oh, I guess uh, Oh, there's another little one here. I gave these to the girls on Wednesday. A blank check. I promise to give the Lord Jesus Christ whatsoever he asks of me. That's another one. Okay. Get some business done, eh? So... We're in a new era. Is the kingdom coming is my question. We're in a new era in God and he's releasing I salve to us. We're in a time of his unparalleled, unprecedented favour. And it behoves us to hear and understand what the Spirit's saying to the churches in this most amazing time in our history. Please don't let's bolt this on to what we already have. I pray God he won't let us do that again. Graham Cook says in a recent communication, Kingdom life is far superior to church life. It has a broader reach into society and no religious overtones. 
We are not sanctuary driven, not limited by professional Christians and not bound by the conventions of man. There's three good ones, isn't it? We are free to encounter God in all his grace, laughter, love and mercy. We revel in truth, bask in his favour, adore his presence and commune with his majesty in all circumstances. This is a year of extraordinary happenings. Whatever we know about church or have experienced about church has not prepared us for what God is about to do. He's doing a new thing and we must renew our mind in order to grasp the enormity of what he's put in front of his people. The next part of the book of Acts is being written on our hearts. The roll call of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 is about to be added to in our day. It's exciting. We're going to see the modern equivalent of David's mighty men coming forth from a nameless, faceless generation. That is the change that is about to come. It's not going to be the one guy or the two guys up the front. It's going to be all of you. All of you. So what I'll be talking about today is what Jesus talked about all the time. Not church, but kingdom. And there is a profound difference. As Graham said, kingdom life is far superior to church life. Broader, wider, and no religious overtones. We are unlimited in kingdom life. We're free to encounter God personally in all his grace, love, laughter, and mercy. He doesn't place restrictions on us, and nor do we place restrictions on him. We greet each day with expectancy, looking forward to seeing what he will do. We bask in his favour and enjoy his presence, knowing that we are the beloved of God. We're learning to sing to a different melody, to resonate with a different frequency, to live in the unforced rhythms of grace, to live a life less ordinary, to expect the miraculous in our everyday lives. lives. And if we aren't there, we soon will be, if I've got anything to do with it. So this isn't a finger-pointing exercise about where we've been and how we failed. This is a new era. We haven't walked this way before, so open your hearts wide to hear what he has to say about what we have up till now understood of what it means to be church. Weigh it, pray it, measure it, don't just swallow it. I'd be glad if you'd come back to me with comments or questions when you've digested it. Feel free to bounce the content off your leaders. We're in a time of profound change and change is here to stay. Our destiny hasn't changed but the way we might be getting there has. Please hear me when I say I intend no judgment in what I'm about to teach, preach or prophesy because I don't know where I'll be coming today. We couldn't see this before. It's fresh, it's a new revelation, God is doing the revealing. It's the way he always is with us. He has consistently revealed himself through the Bible and the person of his son from Genesis to Revelation. Today he's just being himself. Utterly magnificent. He's striding forth to fulfil his eternal plan and we are sorely in need of catching up with him. He's purposeful and intentional. Everything God has ever done has been for one end, to provide one eternal companion for his beloved son. Boiled down, that's what it's all about. He is unwavering in this and he is accelerating in his desire to see the match take place. The wedding of the universe is going to happen and we are the bride 
and we will be ready. The Holy Spirit is releasing to us the capacity to live as the bride. Let's take advantage of what he's holding out. Take advantage of his grace and goodness. Beloved, it's time for us to stop being casual about the kingdom and begin to understand his eternal purposes. There are times when we have to constrain him in order that we can go with him. Do you remember at least twice Jesus made as though he would go on? And it wasn't until they constrained him that he got in the boat on the first occasion and then went to eat with them on the road to Emmaus. They're going to walk, he was going to walk on, but they constrained him to come in. Let's constrain him today by our desire to find out where he's going and go with him. He's asking, what do you want me to do for you? Answer, sir, we would see Jesus. So to review how we got to this place where we are now, we've been building over the last two months on the role of women in the church, the home and society, where we learnt that we were created equal, male and female, different but equal. And then biblical submission relating the latter to leaning on the beloved. Absolute, utter dependence on God. It's very important that we follow the Holy Spirit's direction because the lessons we've learned and are learning about being submitted to the Father and leaning on the Beloved will now become effective in our relationship with God and with one another as we examine the whole issue of church life and fellowship life. Love and marriage, that the old song said, go together like a horse and carriage, but without the first you can forget the second. And so we're going to look at what submission looks like in the context of fellowship life because the purposes of God are born out of this fellowship, first with him and then with each other. Vertical first, horizontal afterwards. His purposes are not born out of church attendance and religious activity. They are born out of relationship. Anything I bring to you is born out of my relationship with him. can't get it any other way. What he gives me, I don't go asking him. And it's interesting that when we look at the succession of where we started with um, the role of women, then biblical submission about being totally committed and submitted to him, now here we are doing this one, uh, and the next one is warfare. You see the pattern emerging, because he's actually bringing forth a warrior bride. I won't ask your hands up, warriors. So I imagine... that this has had more of an impact of those on you who have attended... I'm sorry, we're coming into a time when kingdom is taking precedence over everything we've hitherto experienced. We've become focused on church and the kingdom message has suffered as a consequence. I imagine that this has had more impact on those of you who have attended charismatic or Pentecostal churches, the mainstream Methodist, Baptist or Anglican churches, the problems with dominating and controlling leadership seem to only appear within the former, that's the charismatic or Pentecostal or renewal movements, where I have observed the greatest fallout and pain due to insecurity in the leadership. There are many people whose lives have been devastated by the split or breakup of a church because their eyes were on the church and on its leaders and not on the king and on the kingdom. 
Isaiah 6 1 says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw in a vision the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the skirts of his train filled the most holy part of the temple. Sometimes God has to remove our King Isaiah in order for us to see him. He will not hesitate to remove anything or anyone who is in the way of your knowing him intimately. He is a God whose name is Jealous. So my remit today is to speak to you about four things. The first one is koinonia, that's the Greek word for fellowship. That's K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. The second thing is the difference between the church and kingdom. And then emerging leadership and authority in the church. When I came to that part, the most difficult of all to talk about leadership and authority, which is the title of the thing, the Lord said, no, it's emerging leadership. He never looks back. He's always looking forward. And God's uncommon love, which is the key to where we're going, is agape. So we will be exploring what changes in our thinking would have to be made to transform the way we see ourselves, one another, the church, the kingdom, and our role in the earth. God's original intention was koinonia, fellowship. As I prayed and sought the Lord, I felt impressed to take this first. It's a Greek word which isn't easily translated into English. It is, as Peter Stott would say, better felt than told. It's that sense of oneness that you experience when you meet another brother or sister in the Lord and something leaps in your spirit. It's unity and it cannot be man-made. It's unity in the spirit. You can bring churches together till you're blue. That makes no unity at all. That's just man's attempts to bring people together. And they'll be snapping and snarling at one another just as they were before when they get outside the door whilst they're smiling, singing to the praises to the Lord while they're all together. I mean, it's called hypocrites. There's no blame. It's the way we do it. We've all been brought up with it, more to a greater or lesser extent. So Jesus gave us the model for what he intended while he was here on earth. He lived, ate, slept and communed with his disciples. For three and a half years they shared their lives. They were together night and day. They were friends living in community. Not, I hasten to say, commune. We'll have a look at that in a minute. There's a vast difference. What Jesus modelled for us was community. As they went, he taught them about who he was and what he was going to do and what he was leaving behind for them to continue. And by living with them, he gave them the pattern of how they should continue. And the book of Acts describes it like this. Acts 2, 42-47. I'm totally using the Amplified Bible uh, in this because it seems to just express everything so beautifully. And they steadfastly persevered devoting themselves constantly to the instruction and fellowship of the apostles, to the breaking of bread, including the Lord's Supper and prayers. And a sense of awe, reverential fear came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were performed through the apostles, the special messengers. And all who believed, who adhered to and trusted in and relied on Jesus Christ, were united and together. They had everything in common. And they sold their possessions, both their landed property and their movable goods, and distributed the price among all, according as any had need. And day after day they regularly assembled in the temple, 
with united purpose, and in their homes they broke bread, including the Lord's Supper. They partook of their food with gladness and simplicity and generous hearts, constantly praising God and being in favour and goodwill with all the people. And the Lord kept adding daily to their number those who were being saved from spiritual death. So community or commune. When it says in Acts 2, 43 to 46, that everyone had everything in common, it's not saying they pulled their resources and became a commune. The Bible is very clear about ownership and stewardship, and it gives us the responsibility for these. In a commune, you're required to sell everything and give it to the cooperative. You then live in one of the communal houses. The cooperative owns the property, and it owns you. You have no rights of ownership to anything. Once you're in their house, everything you own is put into the central pot and shared out evenly by the leadership. No one owns anything. You have no money of your own. The cooperative provides for your food, housing, clothing and everything else. That's the idea behind the idea. That's the idea behind a commune. It's a bit like joining the forces, I should think. Or a bit like Robin going where he's gone. In community, however, it's your responsibility to rent or buy your house and look after your own family. In community, every person must be a steward of their property and they must make sure they give to God whatever he requires. So you would say, everything I have is the Lord's. If you have a need and the Lord tells me, I'll give you what it is you need. In other words, you are prepared to share what you have with others at the Lord's direction, not under pressure from anyone. In community, it's also our responsibility to help the poor amongst us. And this isn't giving handouts to people who can't manage their money. It's being pastorally aware of where there are genuine needs and calling the fellowship to meet that need. We've done that more than once here. Uh, when there's been a girlie going abroad to South Africa, when people have been in need, we've taken up an offering and just given it to them. That is what it means helping. So whether by time, advice, guidance, practical assistance or money, we are sharing everything. God gave clear instructions to Israel in the Old Testament about the poor, whom Jesus said you will always have with you. And the scripture here is Leviticus 25, 35 to 40. And if your Israelite brother has become poor, and his hand wavers from poverty, sickness or age, and he's unable to support himself, then you shall uphold, strengthen, relieve him, treating him with the courtesy and consideration that you would a stranger or a temporary resident with you without property, so that he may live among you. Charge him no interest or portion of increase, but fear the Lord your God, so your brother may continue to live along with you. You should not give him your money at interest or lend him food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you should not compel him to serve as a bondman, a slave not eligible for redemption, but as a hired servant and a temporary resident he shall be with you. He shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. God's totally fair, isn't he? And the New Testament uh, reference for that is 1 John 3, 17 and 18. But if anyone has this world's goods, resources for sustaining life, and sees his brother and sister 
sorry, brother and fellow believer in need, yet closes his heart of compassion against him. How can the love of God live and remain in him? Little children, let us not love merely in theory or speech, but in deed and in truth, in practice and in sincerity. The principle here, as we saw when we looked at tithing, is that God owns everything. And our hearts are being tested all the time as to how we deal with our time, our money and our resources. In other words, our talents in relation to ourselves and others around us. Everything we have is on loan to us from him. Nothing is ever ours at all. It really isn't. I'll give you 10% Lord and the rest is mine. Your time, your talents, they're all his, on loan to you as a steward. So the church is intended to be a community, not a commune, not a lonely hearts club, but a thriving community of like-minded people who care deeply about one another. Our relationships are not meant to be superficial. I think you'll find you on your information sheet that I gave you, you have now the, the scriptures that I, I'm going to just draw your attention to. It's marked up two kinds of fellowship, vertical and horizontal. One is fellowship with God, and there are two scriptures there, Job 22-21 and John 17-3. It's on page one, are you with it there? Have I got it? There we are. They're the, by the little dots. So they're all there, I don't need to read them out for you. But um, the headings are there. The knowledge of his will, agreement with his purposes, mutual affection, enjoyment of his presence, conformity to his image, participation in his happiness. And then we've seen ourselves and heard and are telling you. But to realise and partake, that's fellowship. That's the word koinonia. Enjoy fellowship as partners and partakers with us. As I come to um, explain to you what the word koinonia means, you'll see that it's exactly that. So when Jesus spoke of church, he intended we should have something called fellowship. And the word broken down is partake, partner, share, communicate, commune, commune, sorry, not commune, contribute, distribute, and fellowship. So it covers all those things that I've been talking about. And this word was used of family relationships. That's why we can say we're the children of God. We share the divine nature because God has given of us of his very self. We are partakers of the divine nature. Koinonia births in God himself because it's essentially a quality that loves and shares what it has with others in order that they may partake and share everything. God so loved, he gave. Koinonia leads into God's love, which is agape, because koinonia is agape. It's a whole new way of living and a whole new way of loving. When we're born again, Father comes in and shares every part of our lives, our joys, our sorrows and everything else. He gives us his Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised, and he's interested in every detail of our lives because he lives in the revelation of koinonia participation, partnership with him. And it's his desire that we go on to live in this same intimate relationship with him and with our brothers and sisters, so our fellowship is both vertical with God and horizontal with others. He wants to bring us into bridal partnership. 
But to do that, it's got to grow us up a bit so that we can share in Daddy's checkbook. So I've said so many times before, he's not going to give a Lamborghini to a three-year-old that can't master a tricycle. So we need to get to grow up a bit so that we get our course on the Daddy's checkbook. That is when you begin to see signs and wonders, when you've grown up a bit. So fellowship with God, 1 Corinthians 1, 9 says God is faithful, reliable, trustworthy and therefore ever true to his promise and he can be depended on. By him you were called into companionship and participation with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The definition of fellowship with God is that we have fellowship with the Godhead through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. 2 Corinthians 13.14 tells us that our fellowship is with the Holy Spirit. God doesn't only want communication with us. He wants communion, intimacy, fellowship. And he doesn't just want to be the source of everything we need. All we see are his hands in provision then. He wants us close to his heart and seeing his face. He accomplished this when he gave us the new birth in Christ which brought us into his heart. This is why we can say Abba, Father. But there's a distance between Abba, which is Daddy, and Father, Papa. When your children are little, it's Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. When you grow up, it's more likely to be Father. So there's the distance of the growth process between those two words. Where the divine nature is, there is koinonia. We have things in common with God because of our new birth. God gave us all a lump sum at the point of our new birth. All that he had and felt inside of him, he planted as a new seed in us, a new DNA. He did this because he didn't want a distal, distant, formal acquaintance. He wanted true relationship. We have fellowship with the Godhead by the Holy Spirit who's in us, vertical and horizontal. 1 John 3, 7 what we have seen and ourselves heard, we're also telling you, so that you too may realise and enjoy fellowship as partners and partakers with us. And this fellowship that we have, which is a distinguishing mark of Christians, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. <coughs> so now the next thing on your list is the fellowship of the saints with one another. And these are all the one another's. Well, not all of them, but I picked a lot of them out. Bob Mumford describes koinonia, or fellowship, between believers as break off a piece of yourself and give it to me. Feed me with yourself. Oswald Chambers says we need to become broken bread and poured out wine for our fellows. True fellowship is costly. Paul says of Timothy, and his instructions about elders you'll know are in 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, but he says in Philippians about Timothy, the man himself, in Philippians 2, 20 and 22, For I have no one like him, no one of so kindred a spirit, who will be so genuinely interested in your welfare and devoted to your interests. For all the others seek to advance their own interests, and not those of Jesus Christ the Messiah. But Timothy's tested worth you know, 
how with a son with his father he's toiled with me zealously in serving and helping to advance the good news, the gospel. How many of you know it's possible to toil zealously with a hidden agenda? All others seek to advance their own interests. The definition of koinonia amongst believers is having everything in common, sharing in community. So here are a number of people and they have many things in common, not yet all, but they are prepared to work at it until they have all things in common. So it's the sharing of your very life and nature with everyone else around. It's not just a little circle of those with whom you get on well. That's a clique. But a sharing of your whole life with others. Your joys, your pleasures, pleasures, your pains, your burdens. It was never used to describe a society or group of people who just have one thing or a few things in common. It describes a close, sincere, loving relationship. And the word sincere, some of you will know this, but I'll bore you with it just the same, comes from something that the Greeks used to do when they made pots. And um, they would glaze these pots, but sometimes there were cracks in the pots. So in order to stop the cracks showing when they wanted to sell them, they would fill the cracks with wax. Which, of course, as soon as the pots got warm, the wax melted. But to be sincere is to be without wax. So you're not putting wax in your cracks and trying to make things look nice and shiny. You're actually, what you see is what you get. So, sincere. Koinonia then means sharing your life and everything connected with it, just like Jesus did with the disciples when he walked the earth. And believe me, the real thing is costly. But we being many are one body. We are all a gift to each other in the body of Christ. All that we have in our salvation is what we have in common. No denominations, no labels, just one body. The head has risen and the body remains here until the rapture, the catching away of the bride. Boring you with a little detail again. Do you remember the head cloths were in a different place in the tomb from the wraps that were around the body? And the reason for that is that the head has risen and the body is still here. It's lovely, isn't it? Everything got a meaning. Some of you knew that. Maybe some of you didn't. Interesting little snippet. So koinonia begins small and grows. It begins in the home with the husband and the wife and the children. It extends to small groups and then encompasses church and other groups and eventually it should grow to reach the nation or if not the nation, the neighbours at least. So koinonia begins when God releases you to fellowship with others. If we're truly functioning in this, all the gifts, ministries and insights necessary to meet our needs will be found in the smallest gathering because we're relaxed and able to be ourselves. God is in the midst of us. It's a safe place. We're in Father's house and masks can safely be dropped. Thank you. Okay, so you can see by now that koinonia is all about relationships. Firstly with God himself and then with others. Always the same, vertical before horizontal. If we go vertical, before we've gone horizontal, if we go horizontal before we go vertical, all we've got is a social club with religious overtones. 
and will fall in and out with people because grace isn't operating. I remember having a conversation with someone uh, some years ago and I spoke of a third person and the, the other lady said, oh, I've fallen out with them. And before I could think of anything, I said, well, fall back in. <laughs> and they really laughed and they did. I've fallen out, now fall back in. It's so important in our relationship with the Father is established first. Because in that establishment of your relationship with the Father, you begin to see your brothers and sisters as he sees them. And you see the treasure in them. And you love them. I can't help loving you guys. Helen can uh, <laughs> testify to that. I couldn't. I walked past her, touched her shoulder, but I had to go back and give her a hug. I couldn't not... As I said to her, draw her to my manly chest. She said, I don't think that's what it is. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's it. I cannot, I cannot not. There's something rises up in me that must affirm, touch, appreciate, you know, just love. That's the only word, isn't it? So fellowship is necessary for maturity. We can reach a certain degree of maturity with, with God without close contact with other believers. But we level off and we stagnate if we're not in company with them. People say to us, don't you go to church? We say, no. I said, we have church here every day. <laughs> the birds fly in and the birds fly out all the time. Nibble at, the, nibble at the seed and fly out and whoopsie all over the carpet. Yeah. <laughs> the ducks are back. Joyce had a dream recently, didn't you, about the fact that really it's saying people will pop in and pop up, you know. That, do you remember that dream you had? And when we prayed about it, we felt it's just... We expect anything. We've left a guy there today, and there's the cupboard. Find what you need. There's the kettle. Do what you like. <laughs> there's a key if you want to go in and out. <laughs> and it's just so relaxing. I've got to keep watching everything all the time. But we level off and stagnate. Uh, you might want to put yourself, you know, round barbed wire with a Bible under one hand and a shotgun under the other to keep the other. That's very good keep the come out as Steve Hampton would say <laughs> I'll get back to your place uh, so it's within close relationships that growth takes place and I'm not talking about a handshake at the door on Sunday and nothing else that will not grow anything neither will a cup of coffee when you're trying to shout over the PA after the meeting as someone was talking to me recently and I said it's still there isn't it you know they turn the wind the PA up or the people of the worship group get on and up goes the volume <laughs> for those of you listening I mouthed you can't hear a word they're saying oh, so oh, I'm probably being a bit contentious but that's alright you understand so Proverbs 27.17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You know what it is? It's what I spoke about in the first place. That a prophet will attack anything that threatens the freedom of people. I get real, that's, if anything riles me up, it is hearing of people being pushed down, quashed, squashed, quenched, 
not able to do what God is, is wanting them to do in a church situation and that really makes me mad I don't get mad at the leaders because I know that they don't know any better but it makes me mad at the spirit that's operating because I, I, I made a note here uh, some of you might have an issue with your local church leadership and maybe you're even blaming it on a Jezebel spirit let me tell you now, this cannot operate without the permission and cooperation of the fallen nature. It's got to have a landing pad. There has to be a place for it to land. So if that spirit's at work in your fellowship, it's because the flesh isn't dealt with. Nothing more nor less. That is what it is. Um, and this is the, what... Uh, it appears that this now, this era of God we're in, is he's going to deal with that. And it's going to be lovely. So as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's Proverbs 27:17. You need to be pretty close uh, to rub against one another in this way. You can't walk away from it. You know, it gets you in a press and you can't walk away. Fellowship, real fellowship, has a way of expanding and challenging us to face and change some of our attitudes, motives and perceptions. When we experience true fellowship, there's a coming together of brothers and sisters, black and white, rich and poor, street people and institutional church, all sharing and fellowshipping with one another. Somebody told me something the other day about how, oh yes, it was a friend of ours who loves to wear a hat, and they suit him very well, but he went into this church with his hat on. And the person at the door said, would you remove your hat, sir? And he said, uh, I will, but is it bothering Jesus? He said, no, it's bothering our congregation. <laughs> <laughs> I said, wait till I get the prostitutes and the druggies coming in. They won't worry about a hat. And I was taken back to this very church here um, when we used to attend this Anglican church and there was a young lad there, he came in with his cap on. This me. I'll have a word with him and the Lord said you'll do no such thing it's not offending me and you'll shut up <laughs> so I knew all about hats <laughs> we speak of that which we know <laughs> so it stretches us to encompass different cultures and identifies our own weaknesses limitations, prejudices and mindsets and God has this tendency to put us with who we need to be with rather than who we want to be with. And his purpose is to knock off our rough edges, everything that doesn't resemble his son. And koinonia is reciprocal. It gives and it receives. You have to learn to receive. For some of us, that's hard. We're easy to give. We'll give, 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 give. But when it comes to receiving, you know, someone was telling me the story about I think, I think it probably wasn't telling me personally I've heard it on a tape or something uh, 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 wanting to wash their feet they were a leader that's fine for them washing somebody else's but worry when it comes to yours being washed you know there is a place that we've had to do that in the counselling room before now with two blokes the Lord suddenly said I want you to wash their feet they squirmed you'd think it would be the ones on their knees wouldn't you it's when you let your hair down and dry your, their feet with your hair that they really go to town. <laughs> so koinonia is reciprocal. It gives and it receives. It's something of himself that God places in us so we can love the unlovely and the unlikely. 
involves sharing the good things that God's given us, including our time, our talents, our treasure, and our very selves, and it's costly. I keep saying that because it is. It'll cost you everything you've got, but for in that you'll get eternity. That it's not worth holding on to anything in this life for what is stored up for us in the next. So the difference between church and kingdom. The church was designed to be a movement. Jesus said, if you join my movement, this is what you can expect, movement. When church becomes a building, we become static, if not stagnant. We get an edifice complex, and the building dictates our priorities, our purpose, and it consistently aborts our God-given mandate to move among the people and talk to them about the kingdom of God. What is more, it requires upkeep and places demands on us that we serve it. It changes its DNA. If you want to understand more about how church can become an entity on its own, I recommend that you read Bob Mumford's book, Dr. Frankenstein and the World's Systems. It's published by Morningstar and you can get it from lifechangers.org. What he talks about there is how it changes its DNA. Uh, and like Dr. Frankenstein, it gets up off the table. And when you come in under something like that, you come into the building, you actually come under the spirit that is abroad in the building. Because the building takes on an entity of itself. It demands that you keep it up, that you fill it. And to do that, you've got to squeeze money out of people. So it goes on. It becomes something that instead of serving you, you have to serve it. It's so true. And it's just, the first time I read it, I thought, I, you know, your mouth goes, oh, no answer to that. Mm. That's it. The picture on the front is Frankenstein's monster coming down like the steps of St. Paul's or somewhere. Any church, that, now this is not me, any church that cannot get by without buildings, finances and paid experts is not fully being church. That is a quote from a book by a man called Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch entitled The Shaping of Things to Come. And it was written in 2003 and it's published by Hendrickson. I haven't read it. It's a quote that I read somewhere else. I read it in a book, Bob Mumford would say. And another little one, I think this is, this is a little gem. Church buildings attest to five things about the Western church. It's immobility, inflexibility, lack of fellowship, pride and class divisions. That's not me, again. <laughs> Quickly issuing a thingy. It's a quote from someone else. And this was 1975. And it's a man called Howard Snyder, The Problem of Wineskins. The gospel says go, but our buildings say stay. The gospel says seek the lost, our buildings say let the lost seek us. On the other hand, there is the kingdom. Kingdom life is far superior to church life. It has a broader reach into society and no religious overtones, Graham again. Like him, I'm convinced that it's time for the back row to come forward. David's mighty men coming forth from a nameless and faceless generation. It's time for the body, the bride, you, to rise to her place of distinction and glory before the coming of her bridegroom king. 
Someone has described the church as sit, soak and sour. Not me again. A spectator church. It's no way to train believers to be priests. We all have our part to play. It's not about leadership's vision and being pressed into following this anymore, but about equipping and releasing individuals into their God-given destinies. Please hear me, I'm not criticising anyone. What I'm being is a prophetic voice calling the bride to her bridegroom and into bridal partnership with him. And if I have to shock you to do it, then I'll do so. But I know this is resonating with you because we all know what's happened. The um, basket for the steeple fund is <laughs> on the end of the table. Don't get naughty. Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, 18 that he's going to build something called his church. And no matter how powerful the enemy is or how cunning or whatever tactics he uses, he will never be able to overcome what Jesus is establishing. I spoke to someone during the break and they'd been to a big meeting up in London last night. I think they said there was about 20,000 people there just worshipping, praising and interceding. That is the shape of things to come. Small groups, family, then meeting in huge numbers, filling football stadiums, and the glory of the Lord coming down. There'll be no barriers. Doesn't matter what church you belong to. Just as, even if the Baptists are going to get there first. It doesn't matter what church. <laughs> all, the, all, all the Pharisee jokes I'll be coming out with in a minute. Amen. And it's God that's doing it. So the church is described in glowing terms in Ephesians 1, 18, 19, 22 and 23. And Ephesians 3.10 we see that the church is here not to preach to the lower angels but to preach to the higher ranking angels. Why? Because we're seated in heavenly places in Christ. So Acts 2.42 that I read out earlier on is the New Testament matrix. The purposes of God for his church are born out of Holy Spirit-led fellowship. They steadfastly persevered, devoting themselves constantly to the instruction and fellowship of the apostles, to the breaking of bread, including the Lord's Supper and prayers. And a sense of awe, reverential fear came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were performed through the apostles, and all who believed were united and together they had everything in common. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. We get it right, he does the adding. Okay. Quite simply, this is originally what church was meant to be. But just like the Pharisees, we've added to the original. The Israelites were given ten commandments. By the time Jesus came, they were something like 613. They added, and in so doing, subtracted from God's original intentions. Man's hands got on the work of God. And the way we currently do church is no different. Our hands have got onto the work of God and effectively stopped it. As a people, we've probably been going off since Paul wrote to the Philippians. Even then, he was talking about people seeking their own and not the things of Christ. He said that these Christians were seeking their own and were enemies of the cross of Christ. That's Philippians 
They wanted to walk their own way. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you don't do the things I tell you? It's encouraging that some of the problems in the church are not unique. They've been around for 2,000 years. If we really want this badly enough, I believe God will give us a different kind of love to enable us to live a different kind of life. Life with emphasis on the kingdom. Each of us has a part to play. We're like pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. When we come together, we each bring our parts and we should be ready to praise and worship, contribute and mutually edify one another. That's our responsibility. I don't know who it was that spoke to me the other day and they asked the Lord why it was all the different puzzle pieces were different and he said, well, if they were all the same, they wouldn't fit. Obvious really, isn't it? But I need things like that. They've got to be simple. So as we come together and we're all so different, so we fit. That is what it's all about. We're all different and vive la différence because together we make the whole. I can't do without you. I actually can't. I cannot do without my brothers and sisters. I need them. So we come together to mutually edify one another. Anybody who's been in a Pentecostal church for any length of time, they try to do this. You bring a word and you do this and you do that. But sooner or later... Okay, that's enough. Now we're going to do so and so, you know. But that is what we should all do. We should come ready because the level of faith that you guys bring to the meeting can raise the level for the rest of us. And the words you bring may liberate a number of people. Mary did it this morning. We don't come together to sit in a pew or be an audience. We come to participate and bring our offering to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I don't want to look at the back of somebody else's head. The days of church being a spectator sport and an audience coming to church to be entertained are over. This is the nature of the change that is coming, beloved. Everyone has something to contribute. No longer is it just the ones up the front. You have personal responsibility for the level of worship and faith. You bring your own, a bit like a packed lunch, but you have to be prepared to share it with everybody. Do you remember when we had the conference on rejection with Marcus and Val and Ian? They came in with a great big box and they got loads of stuff in it and everybody was having a dip, weren't they? So funny. Some of you will have prophetic words extant over your lives that you cannot see coming to pass, either because of where you fellowship or because you simply cannot see uh, where you are right now. Let me just encourage you, you may drop the ball, but God never does. This is all about coming into our inheritance, looking for revelatory truth. There's a call for us to move in dominion. The church is battered and bruised and the devil is smiling about our condition, but we haven't come into that yet. So we need to know where we stand. God is preparing the church, those of whom he's called up, to be warriors, to be soldiers. All of you are in this. Whether you like it or not, you're in the army. Some of you may be foot soldiers, but some of you will be warriors. Uh, and all of us are going to be in this fight, so we might as well enjoy it. So the difference between kingdom and church, Matthew 13, 44 to 46. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid from joy. And from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. We have settled for mediocrity. Normal life is no substitute for spiritual life and spiritual reality. It's possible to sell everything and buy into religion. Buying into religion cannot help us. It's only the kingdom, the reign and rule of Jesus Christ in our hearts and lives that helps and changes us. Church attendance and religion never does. It's the kingdom, not the church, which comes demanding repentance. In Matthew 3, 2, John the baptizer comes saying, Repent, think differently, change your mind, regretting your sins and changing your conduct for the kingdom of heaven, not the church, is at hand. It's the kingdom, not the church, that's the believer's proper priority. Matthew 6:33, Jesus speaking, But seek, aim at and strive after, first of all, his kingdom and his righteousness, his way of doing and being right. And then all these things taken together will be given to you besides. And in John 3, 6, Nicodemus comes to Jesus seeking the kingdom. Jesus answers him, I assure you most solemnly I tell you that unless a person is born again anew from above, he cannot ever see, know, be acquainted with and experience the kingdom. It is the kingdom, not the church, which God, Jesus explains to the bewildered apostles before Pentecost in Acts 1.3. To them also he showed himself alive after his passion by a series of many convincing demonstrations appearing to them during 40 days and talking to them about the things of the church? No, about the things of the kingdom. It's the kingdom, not the church, which is in word, not in word, but in power. 1 Corinthians 4.20 For the kingdom of God consists of and is based on, not talk, but power. It's the kingdom, not the church, which is delivered to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15.28 However, when everything is subjected to him, then the Son himself will also subject himself to the Father, who put all things under him, so that God may be all in all. Be everything to everyone, supreme, the indwelling and controlling factor of life. It's the kingdom, not the church, which is declared to be unshakable. Hebrews 12.28, the church is shakable, all right. Let us therefore receive a kingdom that is firm and stable and cannot be shaken. Offer to God pleasing service and acceptable worship with modesty and pious care and godly fear and awe. The kingdom of God then is the sum of persons who at any given time are effectively submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You see why the teaching on submission has to come first. If you are not submitted to his Lordship, the kingdom has limited application in you. He's Saviour, but he isn't Lord. And there'll be an opportunity for you later on to make him Lord. I've got some copies of the Lordship Prayer here, um, which is pretty thorough. 
and in, when I was in ministry I used to take people through this because so many people accept the Lord as saviour, deliverer but they don't accept him as Lord of their lives and this Lord Jesus I acknowledge my need of you and I accept you as my saviour, my deliverer and my Lord I invite you now to be the Lord, the authority and to be in control of and be the final decision maker in the whole of my life Lord of my human spirit and all my spiritual awareness and worship of my mind, attitudes, thinking, beliefs and imagination emotions and my expression of my feelings anger, grief, joy etc my will and all my decisions my body, my physical health, exercise, diet, rest and appearance sexuality and its expression my family and all my relationships my secular work and my Christian service my material goods and my perceived needs Lord of my finances, my plans, my ambitions and my future Lord of the manner and timing of my death covers everything and it's what we should have done in the first place the, the young lad that's with us uh, today uh, over today, yesterday training for the Anglican ministry actually is, a, is one of the lads who was in the Genesis group that we first met when we came here uh, and he's got, is it called Didash? is it a book? Uh, and, and it is how they trained disciples about 50 years after Jesus went and it's right straight down the line no messing about you won't be doing this and you won't be doing that and this is how you're expected to live and that's how you're expected to behave and we're not baptising you unless you've done this, this and this I mean it's translated straight from the Greek I said I'm be interested in that I said you put that through the church in this day and age and most people would just recoil because it's not it's not what they're used to either because you're in the Anglican church or something like that where you don't get that close or uh, because you're in uh, the renewal movement where it's all lovey-dovey-dovey and God doesn't expect anything of you does he you know, and both of them are extremes and then neither of them are right um, it's fun to be a disciple of Jesus it's, it's not easy because his demands of us are quite tough but the rewards and the retirement benefits are out of this world <laughs> so you see it's about submission so as I say we'll give you that later if you want it the church is the redeemed of all time some in heaven, some not yet born the church is the home for the family of God and the seat of government of God on the earth and the church is different from the kingdom we've never been told to preach church but to preach kingdom when the church proclaims itself the world sees it as being self-serving what they hear is would you like to come to my church? How many of us wince when you hear the words, the end of your search for a child-friendly church? Who and what is being promoted? Reading the Gospels and the book of Acts, the apostles, were, we are struck by the central and repetitive proclamation, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus only once said, I will build my church. Neither Jesus nor any of the other apostles preached, come to church. So what am I saying? When we preach and proclaim his kingdom rule, people repent and respond with the result that church is built. It's the kingdom which is priority. And out of that proclamation, people are called out to embrace the lordship of Christ. 
the message is the kingdom of God is here Jesus rules what are you going to do about it the kingdom is at once both present and future it's now and not yet it's received now and entered into hereafter it's present within you and flows out from you to others it's it is come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and when he comes in glory and all, with all his saints it's to come so it's the kingdom is now but not yet the kingdom is at variance with the kingdom of man because the standards of behavior are different the kingdom expects the conduct and attitudes encompassed in the word of God to be embraced and enjoyed when we're on we are born again we're under new management under new government We've moved from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of his glorious light. This new government is invading your life with the purpose of conforming you to his image. Religion will never try to do that. Religion is always satisfied with the status quo. Only kingdom requires that you walk the talk. As you speak, so you are. A church without a kingdom ethos and vision eventually becomes selfish and self-serving because the kingdom is within you, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ within. If this kingdom is marginalized and what the church promotes and pursues becomes paramount, the command to seek first the kingdom in Matthew 6.33 is nullified. And what is sought is not the will of God, but the will and the kingdom of man man's hands on the work of God.